Hey everyone, welcome to this other SMY podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today we are interrupting our normal publishing schedule to release a tribute episode to a guest who once appeared on the show on episode 101. We are speaking of none other than Adrian Tan, the former King of Singapore and president of the Law Society of Singapore. Unfortunately, we just received news that Adrian lost his battle to cancer yesterday. Well, I never had the privilege of meeting him. Adrian was extremely kind in saying yes to a request from a random young lawyer from Malaysia. Yes, that's me. Who asked if he wouldn't mind sharing his life story on her podcast. And in a true spirit of generosity, he did. For over two hours. Now, back when I first released this on episode 101, I split it into three parts and it was also quite heavily edited. Today, I'm publishing the nearly 100% unedited version Manas all the ums and ahs is a tribute to the life that Adrian led and the impact that he has left on so many people. Adrian was one of my most favorite guests to date. He was warm, generous, witty, insightful, and unafraid to stir the pot. He was also incredibly relatable because, well, he came from the same world as I do. And aren't Singaporeans and Malaysians essentially the same in all the way that matters? For me, some of the highlights from our conversation include how he grew up in a HDB flat, and the fact that his family's TV was not their own. They had to turn the TV to his hallway where his entire neighborhood gather outside to watch and to comment. Second, his English was so good, he was refused a scholarship to study law and told he had to do English instead. Thankfully, he refused. And that led to him writing some of Singapore's most beloved novels, The Teenage Textbook and The Teenage Workbook which the Business Times has listed as one of the top English Singapore books from 1965 to 2015. It's also turned into multiple things, plays, TV series, even a movie. Funnily enough, these same novels became a huge source of embarrassment for Adrian in his career. Because here Adrian was, a tough professional lawyer, and all his clients wanted to talk about his silly romance novels from his teenage years. He also loved the thrill of fighting court. But in real life, he found it impossible to stand up for himself. And finally, he also shared his stance of how when he discovered he had cancer, he vowed that he would fight cancer, fight my cases in court, and fight for lawyers as their president until the clock runs out. I hope you enjoy this episode and that this episode does justice in giving you a greater insight into who Adrian was. And if you'd like to watch the video version instead, I have released Adrian's episodes on YouTube, part one, two, three, and also a special series where people from the audience ask questions as well. Just head over to YouTube and look for So This My Way podcast or search for it on the show notes at sothismyway.com forward slash 101. It was a true honor to have had him on the So This My Way podcast and my prayers and thoughts go to his loved ones, family and friends during this difficult time. Now... Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. I love to start all my interviews by going to the very beginning. And during my research, I found out that your grandfather was a cook for a British family who suddenly passed away in a traffic accident and that really had a huge impact on your father. And I wonder if you could share about what that impact was, because I think that also influenced how you grew up as well. Well, so the story of Singapore, or the story of this part of the world, 
is always a story about immigration. I think there are people who are born here and who live many generations here. But the vast majority of, I think, people in Singapore and Malaysia, I think immigrants. And each person has an immigrant story. So my immigrant story is about a cook. My grandfather was from Hainan Island. And that's the Hawaii of China. Why is it the Hawaii of China? It's an island. It's very sunny. There are great beaches. And in fact, it's a great place to go on a holiday. But he didn't, for his own reasons, he didn't want to stay there. So he took a boat and came over to Singapore. To now, another you, island. <laughs> another island, yes, but not a Hawaii at all. And, and when you look at the waves of immigration for the Chinese that came to Singapore, I think the Hokkien's, the Cantonese, the Teochews, they came over first, they established businesses. And when the Hainanese came over, right at the end, we had only two occupations. One was F&B, cooking. And the other was, and I read this somewhere, it's very surprising. The other was male prostitution. So male prostitution goes like this. When the British set up Singapore, they didn't want too many women migrants. So they focused on male migrants. And that's because they thought that men would be able to do construction work and build a new city and so on. So because there was a shortage of women, the, I think some of the men or some of the boys turned to male prostitution. I'm not sure how voluntary it was. I'm, I'm sure a lot of it was coerced or worse. But the, the thesis I read in university said that a lot of Hainanese, because they came right at the end, they ended up, the young boys ended up being, being male prostitutes. And I don't know how true it is, but it was, it was said to be like this because Hainanese boys were very attractive. <laughs> so you have I to didn't judge know that. Stuff. I know, and, and I, I will furiously debate that. So I don't know how much of that is apocryphal, but the, the point is that when you ask most Hainanese what did they do when they came here, most Hainanese ancestors will say they were in the F&B industry because they don't want to say anything else. So my, my, my grandfather was like that. He, and I don't know a lot about him. He was a cook in not even a restaurant. It's not even as high class as that. He was a cook in, in some, somebody's house, some, some Englishman's house. And when my father was 10, his father, my grandfather, met with a traffic accident and he died. And my father was really upset because he said that the, the person, the boss, the Englishman didn't even provide money for the funeral. Then death had a lot of impact on my father because at that time, Singapore was still occupied by the British. There was only one route of advancement. Then as now, it's education. And my father was really bright. But because of the death of his father, my dad couldn't go on with further studies. He ended up being a teacher. And, and that's, I think, a source of, I, 
a source of, I would say, discontent for him because he was very, very bright and he could have been destined for great things if his father hadn't died. So this, 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 is, this is the sort of life-changing event that happens not only to one generation, but generations that go down. You see, if there are successful migrant families, it's sometimes not because the migrants himself was very astute or very capable. It's simply because he didn't die. He just managed to survive and raise a family and provide for them. And with that, a new generation is born. I, I think today when we look at migration, whether in Singapore or elsewhere, we also have to think, what, what sort of migrants are we getting? What, what are their stories? And I often wonder and compare their stories to mine. Are we going to get more generations of, of Singaporeans who can contribute? And what type of migrants will we have? I think the same, I'm not even sure if I can say the same in Malaysia. I don't know enough about Malaysia, but I suppose there's some level of immigration as well. But it's not shared or thought about as openly and deeply. I suppose when you were talking about that, it makes me think of some of the posts that you've written. And it sounds like as though you were very much more open-minded than some people about the idea of immigration. For instance, there's one topic you wrote about, oh, foreign workers, should they have you know, access to free legal advice? Don't they need to have that kind of proper representation? Do you feel like you being aware of your origin story allowed you to be more empathetic? Well, partly, but let's face it, they are human beings. We can't really label them to say because they are not from the same country and so on, we should give them different rights. I feel that Singapore itself is built on migration. It's a city that was created out of nothing. Uh, the British came and they, they founded it. Before that, it was a trading port, very successful. But the British were the ones that introduced large-scale migration here and they completely changed the culture. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. When we have a lot of migrants who come here and then they establish a new city, within a few generations, we have our national anthem, we, we are a republic, we have our own way of talking, we have our our own food, our own jobs, then suddenly Singaporeans start feeling that they aren't migrants anymore, which is fair. They're not. I'm not. I'm not a migrant at all. But then they start thinking, I, I want Singapore to be frozen like this forever. I don't want change. I don't want people to come in from outside and start changing the Singapore that I love. Maybe the, the people that come in are from Europe or from America, from India, from China, it doesn't matter. They're different from me. Now, now that I'm like this, I want to put Singapore in a jar and, and not change it. And I feel that I can understand why people feel that way. Singapore is a nice place, but I think it's not realistic. And it may actually be better for us if we accept that migration is is necessary, especially when our city is, our, our country is not growing. Now, one interesting thing is that 
the number one area or source of migrants that Singapore seems to want is Malaysia. And Malaysia wants you back too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, I, I think Malaysia wants Singapore back in a way, but Singapore also wants to, wants to capture, attract, maybe that's a better word, the best, the best that Malaysia can offer. So this is, I'm not even sure there's a source of tension, but the, there is, there is some thinking that, well, when you look at Malaysia, they're very, very much like Singapore. Malaysians, they look like us, they talk like us, they eat more or less the same thing, and they have the same values, I think, the same outlook. And so it's very easy for Malaysians to assimilate. So when, when Singaporeans think about, okay, Singapore is not growing, we need to grow it, but where are we going to get people from? Are we going to get people from America? No, we don't like that. Australia, New Zealand, no. Europe, no. China, India, no. They're still very different from us. Hmm. Oh, Malaysia. That's just like Singapore. So that during, during COVID, when we were having a lockdown and immediately after, there was a bit of a, a spike in, in work that, and business. Every, everything just spiked up once the lockdown ended. And people started looking for new, new employees. And immediately people started thinking, oh, well, maybe we should look to Malaysia. Maybe we should find some way to attract Malaysian lawyers, Malaysian doctors, Malaysian anything to come over here. And then we'll start that story all over again. I'm not sure how Malaysia feels about that. I mean, Malaysians, I think a lot would jump at the chance to go to Singapore and three times what you're earning here as well. So. Well, it, it costs three times more. And I have to say that culturally, there are many similarities, but also yeah. a lot of differences. So I, I think that Malaysians can be very outspoken when it comes to politics and other areas. So in Singapore, politics is very boring. Every five years, I think we have an election or something, and that takes about two weeks. And uh, sure, you weren't an exciting politics, though, given what we uh, are facing. <laughs> we we say we don't want, and maybe we mean it. But every five years, we kind of want it to be a bit more exciting than what it is already, because it's so predictable what's going to happen. the The same People's Action Party will go back into power because they're very popular. They'll always have a a mandate, they'll form the government. Maybe the opposition will win a few more seats, maybe not. And that, that's the drama for the day. And then the next day, everybody goes back to work. And when we look across to Malaysia, we think, oh, look, you know, this is very different. There is, there is all kinds of activity. So I, I think that's the comparison that sometimes Singapore has with Malaysia. suppose it's always the case of grass is greener on the other side. I wanted to go back to the theme of acceptance and what your father went through. I mean, I imagine that even though you might not have been fully consciously aware of his discontent, he must have filtered down through the way that he lived his life, your family life as well. And I read that you actually got into this really elite primary school, Anglo-Chinese primary school. What was the story behind that? Because that was something that really transformed your life, right? So my father was a primary school teacher 
And so was my mother. In fact, that's where they met. And I was their first child. I have a brother. And my mother believed, my parents both believed in one thing. The power of education to transform lives. And when you think about Asian immigrants or Chinese Singaporeans or any kind of Singaporeans, honestly, they are big believers in education. Now, if you, if you get into a time machine and go back to the 1960s, that was when I was born, and you see the Singapore that existed then, it was a very new country. There were some small industries that were just starting out. And by and large, people had no idea what Singapore would be like. You, for people like my parents, they had no money. They weren't going to start a business or hand anything down to me to say, oh, here is a big piece of land, here is a house, here is a factory. The only thing they could pass down to me was education. Education is something they could give me and I could take wherever I went. And in, in the mindset of the people of Singaporeans in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the one thing they were always talking about was migration. So they were migrants. They talk about migration. What do you mean they talk about migration? Well, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, you'll get Singaporeans sitting around saying, oh, you know, my dream is to migrate to Australia. My dream is to migrate to Canada. My dream is to migrate to the United States. Wouldn't it be nice to live forever in London? And, and then you think, what is strange? Why are you thinking like this? Oh, because we don't think that Singapore is going to be around that long. I mean, if you knew how Singapore was formed in the 60s and 70s, we had all kinds of issues. We were still a very new nation. And so a lot of people had this backup plan, which is that if I have the chance, if anything happens to Singapore, we're, we're leaving, we're packing our bags and we're going. Now, you must remember in the 70s, that was the time of the Vietnam War, where there was a danger. Communism. That, that's right. Communism would, would happen and there would be a domino effect. The communists would come down Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and in, even in the jungles of Malaysia, there was the Malayan Communist Party. There was, there was lots of stuff happening. So it's understandable that Singaporeans of that era always had their backup plans. And the backup plan works if you have either got money or education. So since we didn't have money, my parents thought, okay, best bet is to do education. But their idea was really different because they thought, let's send our child to a school full of elite people, of the very rich and privileged people. And that's because we want him to go to a good school. And it was a good school, the Anglo-Chinese school. I think there's one in Penang as well. Because everything that Singapore has, Malaysia must have. No, seriously though, there is, a, there is an Anglo-Chinese school in Malaysia. The one in Singapore is, is known to be a very good school, but also known to be a place where the children are from very privileged families. And my mother was determined to get me into that. It was not easy. In fact, you can't get in 
if you don't have a relative there, if you're not a member of the Methodist church, or if you haven't donated, stuff like that. They, they reserve a few seats, a few places right at the end for people who have no connection with the school. And then those places are balloted. So my mom and my dad stayed all night and then they balloted and I, I got a place in. And to me, that was better than winning any lottery, any, any amount of money. You uh, understood the significance even back then when you're six? No, no. Even, I think I only began to understand. I only understood the significance maybe after I started working, after I became an adult. And then and I'll explain to you how it was because at that time, I was, I was just a, a very ignorant child. And my mom came back and she was so happy. I remember she was... It was very late. I was wondering where my parents were. And she came up the, the, the stairs of the flat. And then she just hugged me and said, Oh, Adrian, we got in. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then we went to buy a school uniform. And she got a little bag for me. In those days, the school bag looked like one of those luggage bags that you go on a plane trip with. You know, you get a Samsonite bag. With a little handle on top, no wheels. So just miniaturize that. That was a school bag. I'm not sure like, why. It sounds like a Japanese school bag. It's, if you, yeah, I suppose you, I'm not familiar. I, I kind of think you're right. So it's, it's a bag that has a little, that's hard. It's a hard case. And it's got two little blocks in the front and a little handle. Almost like a soldier's bag. That's how they yes. adapted it. Yes, that's right. That was, that was the thing. That was all the rage. Everybody had that kind of bag. Nobody had a knapsack. Nobody had any other kind of bag. That was, that was the standard bag. I think mine was $15 or something. It was, it was pretty expensive. And Jap Japan is selling it for $1,000 now. Okay, well, there you go. I should have kept mine. I'll be rich now. Duh. should have spoken to you earlier. My, now my you parents, know. Yeah. So my parents put me there. And the first day I went in my new uniform and my bag my, to my shop, Everybody there spoke English. And to me, growing up where I grew up in Commonwealth Close, which is a public housing estate, the, the kids all spoke to each other in Hainanese or, or Chinese or a mix of Hokkien. It wasn't English for sure. It wasn't even good English. That's definite. But in ACS, everyone spoke good English. They spoke grammatical English so naturally and so fluently. So I went back and told my mom, I said, look, everyone there speaks English. And she said, yep, that's, that's fine. And you have to be the best at English because I'm an English teacher. So if you're not the best, it would be a huge disgrace to me. And it would make me very embarrassed. And everyone would say bad things about me and you wouldn't want that. Right. And so if you burden a seven-year-old child with all that kind of guilt, Maternal no gaslighting. <laughs> That's right. Maternal gaslighting, I called it. My, I had no choice. My mom also phrased it this way. She said, look, you are the son of two teachers, two primary school teachers. We, we actually teach English, maths, and science every day. And we've been doing it for years. So we're really good at that. And we're going to teach it to you. 
and you'll be really good at it. If you look at all the kids in class, their parents are not primary school teachers. This person's parent may be some entrepreneur. That person's parent may be some doctor, some lawyer, some government minister. You should pity them because they don't have good parents who can teach them. And I kind of got suckered into that mindset. I wasn't in a condition to resist anyway. My mother was a very strict teacher. And when I say very strict, you know, you know what Asian parents can be like. She had a ruler. She had a feather duster. She had all anything, kinds of... anything she can get her hands on. That's right. That's right. There was a lot of running around the flat. Let me tell you that. So I, I think she, she made me think that I had to excel and had to be better. And if I didn't, I'll be letting her down. And there were all kinds of pressures. And today, today, when I think of that, and then I talk, to, I'm not a parent, right? So when I talk to parents, they say, look, we don't punish our kids. We don't do anything to make our child feel bad. We are very gentle. I can understand it. Then I'm, I'm not able to tell people how to be parents because I'm not. But I wonder, I, I wonder whether the old way was more effective. It probably left me with a lot of emotional scars. But, but you know, for Asians, what's a few emotional scars, right? Yeah. We're but supposed you to also, have. You also said before that you also, you and your brother, both also thought you were very smart and your parents weren't good enough. Was that a feeling that came out because of the way you were brought up to? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't catch, I didn't oh. catch you. The so, audio was down. Oh, I heard you've written before that you and your brother thought that your parents weren't good enough. And I wonder if your upbringing, how did that end up? You know, oh, how did that sentiment come about? No, I, I don't think so. I, oh, okay. I, I don't think so. Okay, I, think, I can remove this. Sure, sure. I think what, what my brother and I thought when we were adolescents and teenagers is the same as practically every teenager in the world, which is that we know everything, we're really smart, and our parents are not cool. They, they don't get stuff. And we have a lot of issues. So, I mean, you remember when you were a teenager? I'm not sure. But when I was a teenager, I had a lot of issues and stuff that I wanted to do. So I think my mother wasn't on board with a lot of it. So naturally, I thought that she needed to get with the program or she was not cool enough, not smart enough. And the thing I learned as I got older is this. As I got older, my mother became smarter. And what that means is I am now in my 50s. When my mother was raising me, she was in her 30s. And she was just a young woman. She had a job. And she also had to raise kids with my dad. They were both just trying to get by in, in this world. Didn't, didn't have much help. They weren't from wealthy backgrounds. So they were just trying to make sense of a very rapidly changing world. My, when my mom grew up, she 
lived in a kampung, a kampung that had a well, no running water, no electricity. Same with my dad. They would rear chickens and pigs and the sort of thing that you'd have in a kampung. And then she moved from that one generation to being in a flat with, with a telephone, with a television. Weren't you the first on your floor to get a television when you were uh, growing up? We, we weren't the first, but we were among, among the first. And the thing about having a TV is that there would be people from other flats, from other homes that would come and sort of watch TV with you through the window. I used to do that before we had a TV. So if you, if you live in a block of flats, you know pretty soon who has a TV and who has a telephone. If you know that somebody has a telephone, then all the, I, I think most people who needed to make a phone call would go to that person and say, can I, can I use your phone? And then they'll bring a small gift, a, some, a cake or something. And then when it's TV, TV is different. TV was a communal event. So imagine if you are living in a tiny three-room flat. We call it a three-room flat because it's got two bedrooms and one living room. That's a three-room flat. About 800 square feet, one, one bathroom. And the bedrooms are small, so everybody lived in the hall. The hall was sort of merged into the kitchen. And one end of the hall had windows that opened into the common corridor. And beyond the common corridor was the entire life of the neighborhood. Everybody would be sitting outside and talking and putting their noses into other people's businesses. It was, it was a kampong that was high rise. So if you had a TV, people would, would watch your TV with you. And if, if you're watching, you, you wouldn't position your TV in a way where the back was facing the window. And people would think there's something wrong with you. Don't you want us to watch TV with you? So everybody, so everybody, all the neighbors would crowd around the corridor and poke their heads through the window and sort of laugh along or exclaim or talk. Because Asian people, when they watch something, they have to talk and comment. And so this was, this was what's happening. If, if you're, let's say you're having dinner in your home and you're watching TV and behind you, there's all your neighbors saying, oh, why did he do this? Oh, this is very sad. Oh, I don't like this part of the show. And you just like, hello, I'm, I'm having food with my family. No, there's no idea of privacy in an HGV flat. So at, at that time, and, and this is, this is the, the strange transformation of my parents' lives. So from a kampong, they moved to an HGV flat. And from, from there, they have all these social mores these new, new ways of being a community that were developing. And so my mom was trying to cope with that. My dad was trying to cope with that. And then they were, they were, they were just married and they're married people. They have their married people issues. And, th and then there's me and I'm thinking they're not cool enough. So my mom is probably thinking, I don't care if I'm cool enough or not. I'm still your mom. You're going to do all this. And, and so be it. So as I got older, I realized that she had a lot on her plate, and so did my dad. I mean, in their 30s, to deal with all that, in, in their 40s, I, I was a really dumbass. I wasn't very smart. I was quite ignorant in my But 30s. you got top in your class most of the time. 
But, you know, I'm talking about being ignorant about life. Having top results in schoolwork is no guide to whether you'll succeed in life. Getting great marks in school means just one thing, that you are able to get great marks in school. Doing well in maths doesn't mean that you'll be a great manager, anything like that. So I'm, I'm always telling people, let's, let's not overemphasize school results. It's, it's no indicator of success. Anyway, so as I'm in my 30s, I wasn't, I'm pretty sure I wasn't able to have a family. I mean, have kids and all that and, and raise them as well as my mom. So as I got older, I began reevaluating my mom. I think we all do that in a way. We keep seeing our parents through different lenses in childhood and adolescence as a young adult. And then as we get older, and then now my mom's passed away, I think that's another lens. How, how unfortunate that I didn't have this lens 40 years ago, 30 years. I could have told her. I could have said, Mom, you did a great job. But all I remember was complaining about how she raised me. I suppose that's the reality that pretty much all of us are guilty of as well. We just don't have that perspective. Hopefully, mm -hmm. it's not too late when we do have. I want Maybe. to talk a bit about Commonwealth Clothes because it's such a fascinating world. The fact that you have no privacy whatsoever. Your business is everyone's business. I imagine it wasn't just your floor. The whole block knew it in ACS. And you're probably one of the only few ones there. Was there some well, kind of tension? I, no, it's, it wasn't a very competitive block for some reason. The, where we were, we were on the 11th floor. It was mostly Hainanese. And we were all very, we kind of stuck together a lot. I think there aren't many Hainanese around. So we'll stick together and... And we'll argue among ourselves, but we'll still stick together. And we will know the business of each person, whose family was doing well, who got a promotion, which couple was having marital strife, which child did well, which child did badly, who is sick, who is not sick. They would take care of each other. For example, if someone needs to go somewhere, someone else would babysit. They would share food. So it's, when I say that, I realize how weird it sounds to me now, to the Singapore of 2022. But in, in the era when I was growing up, people would cook and they would cook more than what their family would eat. And then they would take a dish down to so-and-so, the old lady, the washerwoman, and say, oh, you know, we cooked the extra, extra dish or Oh, today is my kid's birthday, so we made a cake. And they would also gamble together. That was a, a big thing. It's either tontine or something else called tzatziki, which is some probably very illegal thing. So the, the idea is that you would know every family from one end of the floor to another. There were, there were good and bad things because we... Because everyone was the same dialect group, we kind of didn't know. I didn't know a lot of Malays, Indians, and Eurasians. I didn't know people uh, until I went to ACS, which is why it was so eye-opening. But I didn't know how to relate to them. 
And when you're young, Chinese people can be very racist. I don't know whether you realize this, but yeah, when yes. you're young, you're very uh, racist and you don't accept that you are racist. That's, that's right. That's right. And my neighbors would say, if you don't behave, the, the Bengali, the Beng, as they say, the Mangali, the Bengali man will come and put you in a sack and, and take you away. This is the sort of thing they tell little children. So, of course, I had this paralyzing fear of, of Indians until I went to ACS. And then, and then I realized that, oh, oh, these are all my friends. This is, I don't, I don't understand why, why my neighbors have been telling me all this. I imagine knowing how you grew up, you really understood what community meant. That was all you knew. So if when you went to Hua Chong, then you really felt that distance because I imagine you grew up thinking, I am Chinese, I'm Hainanese. And then you go to Hua Chong and think, I'm not a real Chinese. It must have been uh, jarring. Well, yes, you're quite right. But what happened was that my first school eradicated a lot of Chineseness from me. My first school being ACS. And my second school, Hua Chong, tried to put a lot of it back, but there wasn't enough time. And it's hard. It's hard to put Chineseness back into someone. So ACS is a place where, where we're known for many things. For example, swimming, sports, being good at business, uh, always chatting up females. But we're very bad in Chinese. It was it's legendary in in my time, legendary how awful ACS boys Chinese was. And it was also taught very badly at that time. So there was a lot of memorization. Imagine the entire week you're speaking in English, you listen to English music, you watch English movies and TV shows, you read, read English books. And then for two hours, just two hours that week, suddenly you have to speak Chinese and you have to be good at it. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't make the switch. It wasn't enough. It wasn't, I think it's a terrible way to teach a language and, I agree. A, and culture. I, I went to the same school. I mean, the difference was that I was in a primary Chinese school for six years. So I had that grounding. But then when I went to a private school where English was spoken the whole time, and so you, <laughs> unless you spoke Chinese language, I could see the difference. That you just can't, you don't learn Mandarin in that way for two hours yeah, a week. <laughs> absolutely right. So there must be a better way to do this. I was, I was totally uninterested. I didn't think that there was any point in me learning Chinese. There was no utility and it's not fun. It's, I associated it with pain and, and all kinds of, all kinds of horrible things. Then, then in Hua Chong, so then I, I had a scholarship to go to Hua Chong. So Hua Chong is diametrically opposed to ACS in terms of Chineseness. At one end of the scale, you have ACS, not just English speaking, but very westernized in their, their outlook, in the way they, they deal with people, in the way they talk to their teachers. It's all very casual and there's a lot of humor and jokiness. And then you go to Machok and it's on the other end of the scale, which is, it's quite form. It's less individualistic. It's more group oriented. And it's very Chinese. 
And I went there because the government said that they would pay me $2,000 a year if I switched. And I studied in this program called the Humanities Program in Hua Chong. And that was a program which had teachers from England come to Singapore to teach economics, geography, and literature and history to Singaporean students. And this is an idea from Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew thought that children needed to be taught English by native English speakers. And so he, he got the best teachers from England to come over. And some genius in the Ministry of Education thought that the best place to put these very westernized English teachers was in the most Chinese school in Singapore. So you go figure. And the mystery of government, that's why I can't be in government. So I, I had to go and I had to spend my time in, inside this English capsule within Hua Chung. This, this little world where 22 of us students would listen and interact with these native English speakers all the time. And they would teach us stuff about England. We talk about English philosophy, just philosophy, English literature, and stuff like that. And then we step out of the classroom and we get provided with Chinese everything. So in Huachong, the, the school song is in Chinese. When you play sports, you cheer in Chinese. The biggest festival in Huachong was the Mid-Autumn Festival or Mooncake Festival. I'm, I'm giving these examples to show how Chinese it was. All very alien to me. If I could travel back in time, I'd definitely make better use of my two years in Huachong. But at that time, it was too much for my tiny mind to cope with having to learn English stuff and then having a, a, a Chinese world up there. So I had to give one of them up. So now when I go back to Hua Chong reunions, I feel very embarrassed because I'm, I'm nowhere near the ideal Hua Chong student. Very far from it. I, can, I could sense that feeling because one of the first things that you read when I saw your LinkedIn profile is speaks a form of Chinese not recognized or understood in China. So clearly you still feel that very, very much. I thought yes. what was really interesting as well, because you said you talked about going back in time. I imagine another thing you would want to change is the way you conducted your scholarship because it was because of your good English that you didn't get a scholarship to do law. What's the story you know, behind that? It's so frustrating and mystifying. So the idea is that I had a, a small scholarship for the A-levels, that's 17 and 18 years old. And that was to, to pay for my pre-U, pre-university education. But the big scholarship was for university. So once you get your A-level results, you go for an interview and they will decide whether or not they will send you to England to do your university degree. And who will interview you? Well, it's, it's the government. In Singapore, everything is the government. So the, the, the government had this panel, this commission, and it was one of the most eye-opening interviews of my life. I, I remember going there and talking, talking to the panel. It went quite well for a while. And then the chap in the middle, who was the oldest and 
who had a bit of an attitude, I, if I can say that, he, he had a bit of an attitude, said, well, what do you want to study? And I said, no, I want to study law. I, I really like law. I want to be a lawyer. He says, oh, oh, no, no, you can't. You know, we are going to send you to England to study English, to become an English teacher. And I said, no, I, but I don't want that. I want to study law. And he says, well, your English is too good for law. And I was, what? What are you saying? And he said, well, Lee Kuan Yew. And you know, whenever they start a sentence with Lee Kuan Yew, you know you can't rebut it. And he said to me, Lee Kuan Yew, our prime minister, said that the standard of English among lawyers is very poor. Now, your English is good. Therefore, by sheer logic, you cannot be a lawyer. So obviously, I wasn't going to stand for that. I said, no, no, no. I, I could raise the standard of English among lawyers and so on and so on. But they were just not going to change their minds. So in the end, they offered me a scholarship to study English in, 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 in the UK and then become a teacher after that. And I, I, I didn't want to go to England and have a chance to have a four years of all expenses paid, university education, and get a degree and come back, have a job. But it wasn't the job I wanted. It's the most awful, most awful decision of my life. But I'm, I think I made, I'm quite sure I made the right decision because the, yeah, my, I, I, my life is a lot happier now as a lawyer. So I had to tell my dad, I said, that they're not giving me a scholarship to do law. They're giving me a scholarship to do English. And he got very upset because he's very anti-system. He's a rebel. So to him... I can see where it's coming from now. Oh dear. Oh dear. But yeah, to him, this confirmed that the system was nuts. And he said, well, all right, I'll, I'll pay for your university. By that time, my, my dad and mom had already divorced. So it was nice, nice of my dad to say that. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll pay for your university in, in NUS, National University of Singapore, and, and you can study law there. And it's not, it's not really expensive to study university in Singapore. The, the fees are quite affordable. I think they're still affordable. So because of that, I ended up being a lawyer. But uh, yeah, and, and NUS law faculty is a whole different story there. Actually, but why law? Because you read, you wrote about it before, saying that if you did law, sure, there's fees is one thing, but there's also no guaranteed job as compared to doing English. Yeah. Was Tokyo Mockingbird that inspiring that you really needed to be a lawyer? I I think in life, we all have an identity, and sometimes we can find it, and sometimes we can't. And Lingya, you can call it your why. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? For me, it was easy to answer that question. I'm supposed to be here to talk, to speak for other people as a lawyer or as something else. But I'm supposed to be an advocate. I know this because I like doing it even when I was in school. 
I would, I would want to, I always want to speak. And I will always want to speak to explain what was going on and, and to put across a point of view. So to me, being a lawyer was the ideal job. And I had no idea what a lawyer really did. What, who among us really knows? But it was that romantic idea of, yes, I'm going to fight for justice. I'm going to stand up for the weak. I'm going to be the voice of the oppressed. I will be a lawyer. And honestly, there was nothing else I could see myself doing. I thought I might be a writer as well, but it seemed too much to do four years of university to learn to be a writer. I thought that maybe I could do both in university, in, in the law faculty. And you did end up doing both, actually. Before that, during NS, you wrote for two magazines, like Men and Hot, and it was a yuppie talk. <laughs> you That's right. You a personality. And then That's you wrote right. a book. What was the story behind that? Yes, yes. When I was in, in national service, in Singapore, men have to do two years or two and a half years of national service in my time. And our allowance was something like $100 a month. It wasn't a lot. So it was common for, for those of us who could to try and earn extra money. And one of the things that I tried was to be a tuition teacher to try and teach students English. Clearly not for you. <laughs> I, was, I was really bad. I was the worst in Singapore. So I thought I'd try something else. I, I started writing and... I met I met I met someone at a party who was in a magazine and I I I offered to write and he offered to pay me fifteen cents a word, which which is a lot of money. I, I think even today. Even today. Talk. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would I would write every every month. I write these articles for him and, and he published a lifestyle magazine. You know it's one of these very posh magazines about how how you should holiday and what restaurants to go to and the reader would be some young executive maybe some middle management person definitely not me and then I would try to imagine what that life was like and then write about it I, I read other magazines American magazines British magazines try and get a sense of Oh, the reader is somebody like this. Then I would translate that to Singapore and, and then produce this stuff every month. And every, every month I, I would be paid. Then I, I, I was asked to do an advice column for a women's magazine. And the idea was that for most women's magazines, there are advice columns, but the person giving the advice is a woman. And she's usually talking about men problems with other women. So my angle was, well, if you have a problem with a man, then why don't you ask a man about it? And I can, I can, I can tell you more about our problems. And you can see for yourself how problematic we are. So I, I did that column for a while. Eventually, I met someone else at a party and he was a book publisher. And he said, oh, I, I, read, your, I read your articles. That's Go Acting, right? Go Acting, yes. Okay. Goet King is my publisher. 
He's also a lawyer. He's also from ACS. So it's kind of like a tiny little world that we live in. And he said, yeah, why don't you, why don't you write a novel? And I said, oh, well, I've never tried that. Then I said, but maybe I'll write a science fiction novel. Maybe, you know, rocket ships and whatnot. And he said, nah, no, you should just write about something you know. What do you know? So, and that was great advice. Write about something you know. So I said, the only thing I know is, is I've just finished junior college, pre-university. That's the life that I, 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 I can recall. And he said, okay, you just write about that. Then I said, but that's just about going to school and meeting girls and getting into trouble. He said, yeah, yeah, but you know, that's all you know, right? So just write that. So I, I wrote that. That was called The Teenage Textbook. And it, it came out in 1988 during my first year of university. And then it immediately became a bestseller. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure why. So if you're in Singapore in 1988, the world was very non-Singaporean as far as books were concerned. If you went to a bookshop, you would see tons and tons of books from the West. Very few Singaporean novels. You would probably just see five Singapore books, if anything. And so I had very little, I had very little prospect of, of success. I just, I thought, I'll I write this and maybe three people will read it. I'll give one copy to my mom and that's that. But I think my publisher had something to do with it. He, he got me good reviews. He, he, had, he talked to a lot of people and he, he argued with a lot of bookshops, to be honest. He said, oh, look, this is a new book. You, you must carry it and you must put it here and I'm going to come and check up on you and I want you to sell a lot of copies of this. And so before long, the book became a bestseller and it, it became the most, I think, the, the biggest bestselling novel in Singapore. And it was number one on the bestseller list for more than a year. The, Even though that... <laughs> well, okay, let me explain the economics of it. So for an author, each book gets you... 10% of the cover price in, in those days. Um, different people have different deals. I'm sure J.K. Rowling has a much, much better, better deal. deal. Yes, and she deserves it. But for me, it was 10%. So the book was $7.50 and I had 75%, 75 cents. So every book that was sold, I got 75 cents. So I, I always like to... And, and, and the, the royalties from my first book and my second book put me through university and after that through pupillage. So I always like to say that I went through university either 15 cents a word at a time or 75 cents at a time. Because every week I would check, how, how is my book selling? Will I, get, will, will I get enough money to pay for this and pay for that? And Were there royalty checks coming a quarter of every uh, Annually, but in the beginning, it was quarterly. So they sold tens of thousands, tens of thousands of copies. 
it was it was astonishing. The the book became play, a movie, a TV series, and and comics, many other things, and even amazing today, licensing deals. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't. Yeah, I shouldn't have thought of that. But uh, no, it, you did. As an IP lawyer, <laughs> I just no. You're right. It's very embarrassing for an IP lawyer. But I gave away all for free. So that's the thing, right? I mean, because I was also, I've also been offered a book deal. And the co- big question is always when you write, is it normal for the publisher to own your IP? Because that's the most no, important thing. No, no. You should own the copyright as the author. And you should license your copyright to your publisher to do a few things. First, to publish the books. Second, maybe to publish translations. Depends on you. And then you must have a clause that says if your book goes out of print, but your publisher doesn't want to print it again, doesn't want to do reprints, then you have the right to do reprints. Yep. All the IP rights will revert back to you. Yes, that's right. So you must always own the copyright as, as a writer. Exactly. I wanted to say when I was posting on LinkedIn saying that I was interviewing you, I immediately got a lot of responses. And there were two people, just to encourage you, who immediately went, I remember him for teenage textbook and teenage workbook. Another person said, enjoyed the book so much as a teenager, even got copies for my teenage children many years later. So clearly, it still strikes a chord even among Singaporeans now. And what I thought was so fascinating about your novels is that it's a subversive book. It was basically showing students, we follow textbook answers, things will always go wrong. And it seems to fall in line the way that you write with what you have always been. Like you said, I always argue against people. I always speak up. Were you always contrarian? Were you always going against the rules? Is that just part of your nature? Well, you're absolutely right, Ninga. It is a subversive book. And it's subversive because I'm not, I'm not really a subversive, or at least not on the surface. On the surface, I try and get along with people. But deep in my heart, I always go, hmm, this is wrong. Why is it like this? I don't have the personality or the inclination to be confrontational with people. So it all comes out in my books and in my writing. So when people read what I write, they have a certain impression of me as being very outspoken and always always ready to point stuff out and having a strong opinion on stuff. But then when they meet me, they, they are nonplussed. They feel, oh, this is not you at all. And in my book, I, I'm trying to capture that idea. The teenage textbook is, is a story about how young people meet and they, they fall in love or they have relationships, but with the help of a textbook. And this is a very Singaporean concept. The concept is that in Singapore, you should be told and taught everything. That if you follow a manual for life, if you follow a textbook, you'll be able to succeed. Nothing will go wrong. And if Lee Kuan Yew says, then there is definitely nothing going wrong. That's right. Exactly. And that may work for schoolwork but it doesn't work for life. And so the teenage textbook is a textbook about life 
that the characters in the book use. And whenever they refer to it and follow its instructions, everything goes wrong. And eventually they have to abandon using a textbook and they just have to muddle along through life like the rest of us. What I was surprised by when I was doing the research is that not only did your success catch you off guard, you felt embarrassed by the success. Why? For years, for years, for years, for years, because I was going to be a big shot lawyer. I was going to be and like... And here you're subverting the law. <laughs> well, I, yeah, maybe. Because the teenage text, it's a love story about teenagers. I mean, it's so trivial. And it's, it's humor. And that wasn't the persona I wanted. By that time, when the books became famous, I was already graduating and becoming a pupil in a law firm, which meant that I was just one step away from practicing law. And I had this very clear image in my mind that I was going to be Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. Or I would be some terrifying, overwhelming, intimidating lawyer, super smart, blah, blah, very serious. And it's to, to be known as the writer of the teenage text is incongruous. So I would be like giving serious advice and meeting clients and telling them stuff. And then one of them would say, oh, you wrote the teenage textbook. I really like it. It was really funny. This part's really romantic. And I'm like, shut up. In my mind, of course, because I don't have the guts to be confrontational. But in my heart, I'll be like, no, you're ruining it. Stop it. Let me be the fierce lawyer. Why must you mess everything up? So for decades, for decades, whenever I met clients, they would sometimes say to me, oh, I read your book when I was young. And I would just brush it off, which is very rude. Let me tell you, it's very the wrong Asian, thing Very Asian, though. Very Asian. Isn't, isn't it? It is. You're absolutely right. We can't deal with compliments. We, we don't know how to be gracious, in my opinion. I mean, the correct thing to do, which is something I try and do nowadays, which is to say, oh, that's very nice. And, and tell, me, tell me more about it. What did you like? And so on. And in the past, when I, I would never think of doing that because I would think I'm indulging myself. I'm like, oh, I'm such a great writer. I want you to talk more about how much you like my book. So I, I didn't want to be that person. And then I realized it wasn't really about me. If someone wants to talk about something, they had a good experience reading my book, then let them talk about it. It's, they are recalling a time in their lives when they read something that I wrote and they appreciated it and it meant something to them. And it's the kind of books that people read when they are just at the cusp of being an adult. So the, the readers who talk to me, they say, oh, I, I read this when I was 16, 17 when I met my first girlfriend or when I was just going, going to pre-university, moving from an all-boys school or an all-girls school to a mixed school. And I read that and, and it, made me, it made me have these experiences. They are talking not just about a book, but they're talking about a chapter in their lives when everything changed and everything was new. And when they, when they mention it to me, I should, 
I should recognize that. And I should appreciate that. Okay, I had something to do with that. Not intentional, but I'm glad that you remember it. Because when people see me, sometimes they, they remember 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Wow. When they, when they see me, it's not because they know me. It's because they associate me with something they read when they were much younger. And they associate me with a time when life was innocent and all was, well, a moment. Nostalgia. <laughs> there is definitely a big tinge of nostalgia. So I think, I think it took me many decades to recognize that because for the longest time, all I thought of was myself. I thought, oh, don't talk about my book for crying out loud. Let's talk about the law. You're here to get some legal advice. And it's only recently that, so, okay, we can talk about the law later, but you, you're having a moment to, to travel back to your childhood and I'll travel with you and we can talk about that for a while. Was there a tipping point where you had that different uh, idea? Or the way of looking at things and saying, okay, I will go back in time with you. I will accept this compliment rather than pushing it away. I'm not sure. I think it's pretty gradual. The, during COVID, when we had the lockdown, I started writing more on LinkedIn, on social media. And as I wrote more, I, I got more feedback from people who, who read my books. And I guess it was around that time that I thought, oh, I should, I, sh I, I should look at this a lot differently. I should look at it as something that we should appreciate and we should nurture. So it wasn't a big flash of insight, but if it wasn't for the coronavirus, I wouldn't have had that insight. You end up being an IP litigator. And there, I was also an IP litigator. And the reason why is because I was always a creative. I also wanted to write. You went a step further. Mm -hmm. You were a best-selling author multiple times. Did that writing book, in spite of the fact that you were trying to push down the compliments, did that success push you along the way to becoming an IP lawyer after being a convincing lawyer for one year? Well, it was not deliberate. I, I think we all have an interest in IP. But the danger is to, to build your career on your interest. You, I think there are many, many reasons to, to choose a vocation. Your interest is important, but there, there could be other reasons. So when I started, when I started, I was a convincing lawyer because my, my boss, my pupil master, the person in charge of putting me in the right department, said that they needed people in conveyancing. And then I moved to IP, and, and then I moved to general litigation, which is something I enjoy. But I, I hesitate to recommend that to all your listeners. I think if you like something, cooking, writing, music, that's your, that's your passion. And it doesn't mean that you have to make it a job, a career, or anything like that. If you can, it might not be a good thing. I've, I've met people who have turned their passions into their business and who have failed because 
sometimes the way to think about passion is not the same as the way to think about a business. But yes, I always have a strong interest in intellectual property, in trademarks. I mean, who doesn't like branded goods? Who doesn't like movies and music? I love it all. What I thought was fascinating is that you've told us a lot that you are not a confrontational person. You will let it out through your writing. But then you became a litigator. The very nature of your bread and butter is to do, to do dispute. And you've said before in an interview, you get very excited to smash the other side. So I'm trying to reconcile these two sides. How do they come into play? Who are you, Adrian? <laughs> well, that's, that's a very good point. And I think a lot of litigators are like me in the sense that we channel our aggression, our antagonism through our litigation. So if you meet us socially, we'll be pleasant and polite and accommodating. But we need an outlet. And maybe we don't know the appropriate way to have an outlet in, in, social, in, in social settings. So litigation helps a lot. I liken it to actors. There are many actors who are introverts. And they, in social settings, if they find themselves being very awkward, not being very expressive, and then they go into acting or they go into stand-up comedy because when they put on that persona of a character or, or a comic, they, they can give that aspect of their character a chance to air itself, a voice, a moment. And, and they need that because it's precisely because in their normal lives, they don't know how, how to fully function so for me, in my normal life, I don't know how to be disagreeable. I'm, I'm quite sure I'm disagreeable, but not intentionally. I don't know how to, to argue and stand up for myself if I'm in my own situation. If the waiter ill-treats me, I'm the sort that will just sit in the corner and, and not fight back, even against a waiter. That's so strange, though. Why? Uh, even now? <laughs> so that's why we all need an outlet. And I think a lot of litigators have an outlet for their, for that challenging part of their character. They, they can go to court, they can stand up, they can openly accuse people of being liars and fraudsters and criminals and that's all fine. That's, you can write whatever you like and that's okay. I, I guess one, one thing I always feel about Asian society, especially Singapore society, is that we don't have the vocabulary to argue. So in the West, having a debate, a discussion about topics, it can get quite heated, it can get quite detailed, but I feel that they, they have a grip on, on that sort of thing. They know how to argue stuff so that we can understand what the issues are and we can make up our minds. So in Singapore, because I think we're Asian, part of the time when we want to disagree about something, we don't have the technique to disagree. First, we, we confuse being disagreeable or disagreeing with something to being rude or to, to being insulting. And let's say we're in a situation where there's some authority figure or someone in, in power. So we're in a group setting. There's someone 
in a, an authority figure, and he says something we don't we don't agree. In in Singapore, in an, in an Asian context, by and large, most of us would be like, "Oh, he said that. I don't think he's right. I'm not going to say anything though, because if I say something, I'll be correcting him. He will lose face, and he'll be humiliated. Blah blah blah. All that, all that baggage. As a result, we we tend not to deal with issues that well, or we take a longer time to resolve issues. And what we need to learn in, in Singapore and in the Asian context is how to point stuff out to say, oh, you know what? You just said that. That's not correct. Actually, it should be this. Or you think it's this, but I, I think it's something different. And here are my reasons. And we say that in a non-threatening way, in a courteous way, so that we talk about the issue and not spend our time nursing our wounded feelings. We, I don't know when, we'll, when Singapore will ever get there, but what I like from litigation is that I'm okay doing that. I think litigators, they get to go to court, they get to disagree, they can say the judge is wrong, the opponent is wrong, and the case is over. They're great friends with their opponents again. They go out for, for coffee with their opponents. And that's, that's how it should be. I, I, wish, I wish more Singaporeans could be like that, to be honest. What was it like working with Devinder Singh, who's widely known as one of the top litigators in Singapore? He is, he is. I think he is the top litigator in Singapore. And I think people in Malaysia, lawyers in Malaysia know of him as well. And he was, he was my boss for many years. I was a legal assistant. In those days, we call it a legal assistant. It's like an associate. And I was in the IP department. And one day, there was, a, there was a file. There was a new matter. And it was about a hotel. Two hotels with the same name. And it didn't seem like a big case, but it, it turned out to be a big case. I, I started working on it. I, I was the main associate on it. And I wrote the letter of demand, the pleadings, affidavits, all stuff like that. And the client wanted the best lawyer in Singapore, which is Davinder Singh. Now, at that time, I never worked with him. And all I knew was that he's a super scary guy. He's very, very terrifying. But, wow, a chance to work with him? Sure, okay. And then he took the, he took the, the case and he was number one. On, on the case and another partner, Dido Singh Gil, was number two. He's now a judge. And I was number three, I think, on it. I was in charge of all the paperwork and dealing with clients. My, my point is that I was having a lot of interaction with the client, making the, the file, and then Davinder argued it, and he won. It was great. It was a famous victory. And then after that, after that, he did more files with me. Maybe I should say I did more files with him. But uh, you know what? It I works. Mean. Yeah, something like that. I, I gave him a chance to work with me. I should have said it that way. No, seriously, I worked through the night. I worked my butt off. And it was a great success. And then I got more opportunities to work with him. And then 
I had a chance to become a partner and start my own team and do my own cases. And all that would not have happened if I didn't have a chance to work with him in the first place. What do you think made your partnership with him so successful? I mean, some of the big cases you worked on, the National Kidney Foundation, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, Lee Seng Hong, again, Singapore Democratic Party. There's a big, big, very public cases. Oh, I can't claim any credit. I mean, he he wins a lot of cases. And I get to... Write on the coattails. I like write on the coattails. I get to carry the bag. I get to sit next to him. I get to take the notes. And I sometimes think, yeah, you know, the way I took notes during the trial, it would have swung the case. I think that was what the judge noticed, that apart from all that cross-examination and the fiery submissions, there was this associate sitting in a corner writing writing the notes, and that was probably what swung it. No, I'm I mean, sure seriously. Cl- I'm sure the closing submissions were very important too. I mean, who does the work, the associate? <laughs> I like that. It's true. It's true. But I think, I think he won cases with me, but also with many, 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 many other people. So it, it wasn't me. Perhaps on a more broader perspective, since you've been in the field for so long, what does make a partnership work between an associate and a partner? Because sometimes it just doesn't work, but sometimes it works so well. Right. Very important question. And the answer is, don't be a substitute. Be complementary. What does that mean? So if you work for somebody, let's say a partner, the fundamental error is to think that you should be the partner. The, the error is to say, I'll emulate the partner in the way the partner thinks, the way the partner talks, the way the partner behaves. A lot of associates do that. It doesn't even have to be in a law firm context. A lot of people try to be like their boss. That's not going to work. What you're supposed to be is you're supposed to complement your boss. You're supposed to be the other piece in the jigsaw puzzle. So if your boss is not working, you work him. Let me put it another way. If your Maybe boss not is, that one. Not that one, yeah. If, if your boss is very big picture, then you should be details. If your boss is very passionate and fiery, you should be calm and cool. It'd be terrible if both of you are calm and cool all the time, just as it's terrible if both of you are fiery all the time. So you have to compliment your boss. I think that works in a work environment, but it also works in a human relationship. We, you, you know, the way people pair up, sometimes they think, oh, you know, you have the same hobbies, you have the same personality traits, blah, 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 blah. So you should get along. But that's not how it works. You have to be the other piece of the jigsaw. I want to talk about the art of persuasion, which you've also talked about quite a lot. Was there a particular incident where you successfully persuaded and you're really proud of doing it? Oh, no, I'm not going to talk about my, my successes. I think that's... Or your failures? <laughs> yeah, well, I can't think of any. Haha. But I, I'm not going to talk about my successes because I don't want to be one of those lawyers who talks about, you know, I won this case when I did this. And I remember that another case where I argued this and, you know, it's total flawless victory. So I, I, no, no, 
but I can talk about persuading people. And yeah. the, the thing about persuading people is to be as simple and direct as possible. So you think, oh, that's pretty obvious, right? Yeah, simple and direct. No, many people don't understand what it is to be simple. And it comes from understanding what, what the issue is and how to be and, and how to simplify it. And to be as direct as possible means not to use any, any words that hide your feelings or not, not to be indirect, but to be as, as blunt, as clear as possible. I, I always tell my team of lawyers that you must, you must write and talk as if you're talking to your six-year-old nephew or to a small dog. It doesn't matter if you're writing to a judge or to your client. You must talk in a very simple way. That's the key to persuasion. And that's the key to good writing as well. Just keep it short and simple. And so tell me like I'm five. That's basically the rule. Yes, exactly. So when we, when we do this, we all know this principle, but what we need is a good editor. What we need is another person to read our stuff. So whatever you write or whatever I write, I have to show it to somebody else. Let's say I'm writing a legal submission. I have to show it to somebody else in my team. Sometimes I, I pick the most junior person, our trainee, for example, and say, hey, what do you think? And I need, I need that trainee who may not even have read all the other papers to get the gist of what I'm saying. Also, don't, don't be proud. The idea is that when you're writing something, you need to be as, as open to correction as possible. So don't be so precious about your writing, your this word or this phrase or this idea. Because if it, if your reader doesn't get it, then who are you writing for? Perhaps so, an Asian thing. Juniors tend to be very scared of criticizing or be seen to be criticizing their seniors. Is there something yes. that you do to try and encourage this sort of feedback from your juniors? Well, it's, it's really a cultural, cultural thing. If you, and I, I myself, I myself am guilty of it too. I mean, if someone, let's say the, Let's say the chief justice is here, right? And let's say I have his judgment here and I don't agree with it. I'll still find it very hard to say, chief, you know, this part is completely wrong. What are you thinking? I don't think I'll ever say that. I, but you I write it. I'm guessing you will write it. And then so. the media will pick it up and make a headline. No, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, you see, that's, that's, really, that's really the test, isn't it? If I disagree with someone who is, who is much more of an authority figure than me. I, I try not to write about the law where I disagree with, with judges because if there's a judgment on something, then that's, that's the official ruling. And I'm, I'm not going to write about why it's wrong. But I'm happy to criticize politicians or entrepreneurs, tycoons, basically any, anybody else. But for judgments, I, I feel that it's not right. 
Fair enough. Before we go to all your writing part, I want to talk about this brief period you had when you were general counsel after oh. one decade of litigation. Right, and right. Why would you do that? So I was working for, an, we had an IT client, and after the case was over, he said he was looking for a general counsel. And this was in, I think, year 2000, the dot com era. And yes, and I was thinking, everyone's saying that there would be a boom. And I wanted to be part of that boom. Maybe I'd be very rich. Who knows, right? He said he would take his company IPO. So I asked, asked the partners and they were very nice. They said, okay, off you go. You be an in-house counsel for a while. And if you, if you come back, come look us up. So I, I spent two years as the general counsel of Crimson Logic, which is a government IT company. That's a company that provides what we call e-government services. That means basically apps and software that help people use things like the court filing system. So in Singapore, we used to file everything by paper in court. But in year 2000, we switched over to something called electronic filing, where we wouldn't use paper anymore. So stuff like that. And when I started working in Crimson Logic, I began, I was sent to other countries because one of the things Singapore does is that we want to sell our stuff overseas. So I went to Canada, Mauritius, Saudi Arabia, many other countries to, to, to sell Singaporean technology. And the thing about Singapore is that we have a brand. The Singapore brand is is that if it's made by the Singapore government, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. And we, we, went, to, we went to sell that system to various countries. But in, in doing that, I also became an advocate for Singapore because when you try and sell an IT system, that's, that's a government system, you are actually selling how reliable the system is. And in this case, how reliable the government is because the government made the system. So I find myself having to talk about Singapore, how big it is, what its history is, what its culture is. And many people know about Singapore all over the world. I, I'm not trying to boast, but I guess the people who were interested in our systems had a pretty favorable impression of Singapore, that it was efficient and stuff like that. We we. We, we tried to sell our systems in other countries as well, which I won't name. And those countries couldn't accept our system because it left no room for corruption. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a strange thing. But when you have, have paper-based systems, sometimes the clerk, the clerk can go to the person at the registry and say, oh, can you please file this and put it right on top and I'll, I'll pay you something. And that, that is how it works in some countries. But with an electronic system, you can't do that. So in, in some countries, which I won't mention, we actually got feedback from the, from the authorities that, that this, this was a problem because the, the clerks, the registry, etc., they were used to a certain way of doing things. I noticed, obviously, you were talking about being at GC, you were flying everywhere. But I have to ask, were you 
bored because yeah. you ended up during that time, you did a bachelor degree in computer science and psychology. Sounds like you had a lot of free time. <laughs> it was so awful. It was really awful. I liked the company. I liked the people, but I didn't like the job. It was such a boring job. There were lots of contracts to do. I would be flying around the world, meeting people. So that part's interesting. But ultimately, it wasn't, it wasn't what I was built to do. So in your words, it wasn't my why. I don't exist to be a person selling technology. So when I was there, I thought, since I'm in an IT company, I can spend some of my time usefully by doing a degree in computer science. So I spent my days working and my nights and weekends doing a computer science course, going for tutorials and doing exams, stuff like that. But after a couple of years, I, I just gave up and I told my boss, I'm so sorry, but this is, I don't like this. So I need to go back and be a litigator. Despite the lack of work-life balance, you ended up becoming president. You still are actually president of Singapore Law Society. When did you become aware of the importance in being involved in the law society? Because my understanding is you didn't always think that way at the start of your career. I've been in the Law Society in council for many years. So I think it's important for lawyers to be part of their legal community. In Singapore, there are only 6,000 lawyers for a population of about 6 million. And I think there are too few of us. But the upside is that we're a small family. I'm sure it's the same in, in most cities. KL, JB, maybe. Yeah, you know everybody. Then, if we know everybody, when we meet everybody at work, then we should also do the next thing, which is try and solve the problems that our profession faces. We have, we have problems in Singapore. One of, one of them is the attrition rate of young lawyers, which means that during COVID, during the lockdown and immediately after, people were reevaluating their lives, their working lives, and they were thinking that maybe legal practice is not for them, particularly the way legal practice has been done in the past. You talked about work-life balance. That's, that's actually such a big issue. It's very interesting. The, the idea of a work-life balance is something I argue is very new. In fact, the idea of, of working and retiring is also very new. So when, when people talk about having a work-life balance or working and then retiring, it's not how the human race has been going on. When we were an agrarian society or even when we were an industrialized society, we basically worked for as long as we could because we needed to provide for ourselves. And we didn't think there was anything wrong with it. So. In the same way, I don't, I don't understand what work-life balance is. I know, I know that there is work and I know there's other stuff that I want to do. But all that work, my hobbies, my friends, it's all part of life. I, I don't balance life against something else. So anyway, these are all big issues that our profession faces. And this year, 
when I became president, I thought we will have to talk about the big issues. Even if we don't have solutions, we should start talking. What are we talking about? First, working conditions, young lawyers, old lawyers, working remotely, using technology. We talk about bullying and harassment. We talk about whether we're paid enough by the courts. And that's a whole different area. It's talking about costs. We're talking about changes to the, to the profession. And we're talking about people who are not lawyers coming in to do lawyer stuff. You're talking about social media too. You want lawyers to yes. go on social media. Yes, because as a, as a civic society, we cannot do our duty as citizens if we do not understand the rules by which society works. So we have to know what laws are, how they are made, what the laws are, the ones that are important, and how to change them. We cannot have access to justice if we don't understand the law. So since the law is so important, how are we going to learn it? Well, for, for lay people, they learn it from Netflix. They learn it from legal thrillers. Suits. From suits. And it's all very inadequate. It's not their fault. This is what they, they're given. Law is a really hard thing to learn. So as lawyers, we need to bridge the gap. We need to tell people what the important laws are, what the issues are, how laws are made. And we need to do it in a way that will appeal to people and make people want to read. So in other words, we have to be legal influencers. We have to, to use social media and shape our message accordingly. For me as president, that's what I'm trying to do this year. And it's very useful. So for example, whenever we have an issue that faces lawyers, one, I, there was one issue this year, which is about cheating. So there were some pupils, some trainee lawyers who were caught cheating their bar exams. And the public was very upset with this. Understandably so. Now, in the old days, before social media, I don't know how we would have dealt with it because the public would just be upset. They would talk among themselves. And then we lawyers would just talk among ourselves and say, well, I don't know why the public is upset. They shouldn't be upset. But we would not engage them. And even if we wanted to engage them, the old way would be, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to write a speech and then I'm going to get the reporters to come and then they might quote some of my speech, but I can't choose what they quote. And hopefully that, that little bit that they quote is going to change the hearts and minds of the general public. No way, right? That's not going to happen. So thanks to social media, we have a direct access to our constituency. We have a direct way of talking to the general public. And I could say to all of them, hey, you guys, you know this thing that you were talking about that was really upset, upsetting you? This is what really happened. Let me tell you what, what I think. And I was able to talk and, and say my piece. But equally important, 
I was able to respond to questions. So when you post something on social media, people will ask questions, they'll comment, and I could engage. Now, in the old days before social media, you couldn't do that. You just like put your statement out into the vacuum of space and hope that it's clear enough. And it's never clear enough. So I think this is the way forward. If we want to be a more engaged society, if we want to, to, be, to make change and, and to, to bring about a better society, the first step is to know the rules. I couldn't agree more. That's why I also like to create and write online as well. But what I noticed during my research is that your current writing wasn't always like this. When you first started three years ago, you wrote bland posts because you didn't want to offend people. And then you changed. And I think your partner, Stephanie, had something to do with that change. Could yes, you just share, right. share how that evolution came about? Yes. So when I first started writing, social media is a very new thing. And when I first started writing, I thought, maybe my job is just to inform and not to give an opinion. Maybe I should just talk about a situation without expressing a view. And I thought, oh, that's very proper. You know, that's, I think that's the correct way of doing it. But, but Stephanie, Stephanie Yen Tio, my joint managing partner in TSMP, she said, no, you, you have to be a thought leader, which means that you have to point your readers in the right direction. Don't just show them the landscape. Don't just show them the buffet and say, you can eat this, you can eat that. Or you can go here, you can go there. That's not a leader. That's just being a maitre d' or a waiter. So I thought, okay, but what if I say something and it makes people upset? So this is me not being confrontational. But she said, so be it. I mean, people are upset because you said what you thought. Then that's how life is. It's, it's terrible if they get upset over something you didn't do. But it's okay if people get upset over something that you did and you believe in. So I think during, during the lockdown 2020, 2021, I began having more of my opinion. But I, I, I tried to sugarcoat it sometimes by, by, being, by imagining something. So I would say, well, if I were king of Singapore, and, and I would use that phrase to say, I'm being slightly imaginative and not entirely serious, so please don't take offense. If I was king of Singapore, I would do this. So for example, if we transport foreign workers in bags of lorries and we don't give them adequate safety measures, they'll get hurt. And that, that would be the end of an opinion and the end of a post. But to go further, I would say, but if I were king of Singapore and make a law that blah, 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 blah. And after a while, I took on a life of its own and I began imagining myself to be king of Singapore and punishing people who are very mean to their pets or stuff. Writing stuff from like the that. perspective of a cat. <laughs> yes, or writing from, yes, from the perspective of a cat. So, so the cat, the cat symbolizes a couple of things. 
to me. So a cat is very much like a lawyer in Singapore in the sense that uh, cats don't really have a master. You, you can't make them do stuff that they don't want to do and so on and so on. But the other aspect relates to actuals in Singapore. So in Singapore, we used to have a rule a law called Section 377A of the Penal Code. And that criminalizes male homosexuality. But the catch was that the government said, although the, such a law existed, they would not enforce it. So on the face of it, we had a law that says if you, if you commit male homosexual acts, you could be punished and you'd go to jail. And it's on our books like any other law. But this law is special. The government said, we won't enforce it, but we won't repeal it either. And that was their position until recently this year. And I thought, oh, this is such a strange situation. I wonder if there are other situations in Singapore where we have rules, but we don't follow them. Because, you know, in Singapore, we are a very law-abiding nation. SOPs everywhere. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, very different from Malaysia, I should say. And you're I'm not, not saying, that different. You're not that different, though. Once you come to Malaysia, it all falls away. <laughs> yes, and and I'm sorry about that, but uh, yes, I think that's environmental. But but we do so talking about cats in public housing is very similar to the situation under Section three seven seven A. So, eighty percent of Singaporeans live in public housing, and there is a rule that says no cats are allowed in public housing. But yet you see cats everywhere in flats. So there is a rule, it's a very clear rule, and it's not being observed. In fact, it's not being enforced. And that, that made me liken the situation to, to Section 377A as well. The, the gist of it is that it's not a desirable situation if you have a rule that you don't want to enforce. I love your writing because your voice really comes out. And I don't know if this is hearsay, but some of the quotes that I loved was you once saying that a contract is like a condom with the right man, you don't need it. <laughs> or another time where you would say, you know, every celebration is like a virus and it's a hose and I'm the hose. And I wonder, you know, this is such a unique voice. It's really memorable. Do you ever sometimes stop and think, oh, is it an appropriate situation for me to share this? Because people will immediately go, oh, I'm not sure if I would follow or agree with your humor and they would disengage. It's, it's, it's true. I do have, I do often get plagued with self-doubt and worry that I've said something that's inappropriate. But I'm now at the point in my life where well, I, I'm not sure what the future will bring. So I can't spend my time worrying about little things like that. I have to express myself. I have to be true to myself. And I think all of us need to be. Yes. What about for the young lawyers or young professionals? They also want to share their thoughts, but their bigger concern is, I just started my professional career. I'm sure I don't know a lot of things and it would change over time. But the thing about putting it online is it will haunt you for the rest of your life. Yes, so how it will. You think about it? it will, it will. And I'm thankful I never had social media when I was a young lawyer. I'm quite sure I would have 
broken some rules or crossed some lines. The, the thing about young lawyers now is that I encourage them to be on social media. I encourage them to write about law or to write about their work and to express themselves, to reveal themselves to their employers or to their clients. I think it's a good thing. The, the trick, though, is not to say anything and everything. It's not about you talking. It's about making people pay attention. And that's the difficult part. Because most of us have so much to say. But how do we get people to even notice something, something that we've written or some post that we've put up? We, we have to find our own, our own hook. And I'm sure young people nowadays, they know social media better than me. So my, my tip to them is find a way to make people pay attention. I think you're the perfect person to ask because I look at your posts. Every single one for any average person is the equivalent of a viral post, even when it's something as simple as a legal case. So what is the secret? How do you get attention? For me, I feel that we always have to tell a story. I have to tell a story. So the, the rule is you have to be simple and direct. Hmm? Simple and direct. And that simple means your language and direct means the, the point, the point that you're making. And the, the simplest way to communicate is the way that we've been taught as children. And it always begins once upon a time. The moment somebody says to you, so a child, once upon a time, then you have that person's full attention. Oh, I'm going to hear a story. Oh, there's going to be the characteristics of a story. A beginning, a middle, and an end. So don't tell a fake story. It's just a beginning or just an end. Uh, and I know when people write on social media, sometimes they just are in a hurry to get to their point. My conclusion is, my opinion is, that's, that's fine and good. But you need the once upon a time. So when you, and, and there are many other ways to write. Mine is not the only way. But, but what I found is that for me, if I want to talk about a case, I start with, this is the person in the case. This is a person who's autistic, or this is a, a, a person who's committed a crime, or this is a person who, who did this thing once upon a time. And then that's the beginning. You introduce all your characters. And then the middle, you have the conflict or the issue or the crisis. And then you have the resolution at the end. It's not difficult. It's, it's perfectly doable. And it's one of the classic Pixar storytelling rules that you always see go viral online as well. I would love to wrap up with the fact that you're also going on a very personal journey that of finding out about having cancer. and what touched me was that you said that you would fight cancer, you would fight my course, my cases in court and fight for lawyers as their precedents, the clock runs out. What's behind that drive? Well, I don't have much else to do. No, but, but seriously, this, this really comes back to the why, isn't it? Mm. And if, if you, if any one of us knew that this is the amount of time we have left. What would we do? 
So my friends, when I told them I had cancer, they said, oh, you must stop working. You must go on a trip. Go around the world. See all the sites. Eat, eat the most exotic dishes. And so on and so on. And that works for them. That is their, that, that is their why. And that's fine. Another person's why may be, I'm going to write my novel or I'm, I'm And that's what see. you're doing now. Yes, that's another thing. Just too many things. But you just can't stop. <laughs> I guess I guess not. Something will stop me in the end. But but having cancer is helpful because it'll tell you your why. Straight off. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to wonder, am I supposed to do this? Or am I supposed to do that? When you're told that you have this, you start thinking in terms of, okay, then I better do this and I better do that. But before, I mean, you sound like you have almost accepted this, but you also shared that you were very angry and you were working through it. How, yes. how do you go through those emotions? I am very upset. Yeah. It's, it's still very new to me. I found out only in March and we're just in October. So I'm still very annoyed that this is happening at this time. And I, I wanted 2022 to be about being president of law society and being a, a lawyer. And this cancer has really interfered with all that. I don't think I will ever accept it. But what I've got now is a plan. And the plan is, all right, so we'll have to deal with this cancer. And we have to do, we have to do all the other stuff that we need to do in case, in case we have less time than we thought, in case I have less time than I thought. So that, that's, that's what I mean by focusing, by focusing your mind. It's fortunate in a way because it's possible to go through life without knowing your why at all. You may try very hard to search for it and you may live to a hundred and still feel that you haven't done the thing that you're supposed to do. Some people, don't even, even, know. Some people even tell me it's irrelevant. They don't think about it. So that's, that's, that's interesting and I feel yeah. that's valid as well because not everyone, it sounds pretty harsh to say this, but not everyone has a purpose and, and that's fine because if, if you enjoy your life as it is now, doing what you're doing or not doing anything, that's, that's valid. No, one, no one's going to test you or evaluate your own performance no one really cares how you do in your own life when it's over it's over you're the only person that's going to judge very true you mentioned friends as well and i'm sure friends care about what you are going through and i wanted to read one quote you gave once i realized in life you have three friends you're wealthier than anybody else so i'm lucky to have three friends i wonder even if you don't share the name who are those three friends? What are the qualities that allow them to be your friends? Oh, I can't tell you who they are. They get very annoyed. But <laughs> they're very different from me. 
And yeah, how do you find them? So life, yeah. life kind of throws up friends along the way. And I think in life, you will meet people and out of the many people that you meet, you might enjoy the company of a few dozen and among the few dozen, you, you might happen to be able to have some chemistry with a few and they might like you. Maybe just a handful of them might like you. And if it's three, that's my rule. If you have three good friends, you have more than most people. You're luckier than the wealthiest billionaire. With your three friends, you have people that you can talk to who care about you. You have people who understand you. And actually, all you need is one person who understands you and who cares about you. That, that's sufficient. So if you have three, you, you really have more than enough. Ideally, I should just kill two of my friends because they're surplus. I could donate them to the Salvation Army. Where Robin Dunbar says you can have five really, really cool sets. <laughs> so you still have some space left. Don't need to go that far yet. <laughs> so Adrian, I mean, I've taken up so much of your time and I've loved this conversation. When I put out the post saying that I was interviewing you, there were a number of people who said, I have questions I want to ask Adrian. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play their question to you so you can hear them tell you their question. So the first is from Aaron. Hello, Adrian. This is Aaron from Malaysia. Big fan of yours on LinkedIn. I love the way you write. Very provocative and very funny. I have two questions for you. The first one is, how are you doing? How's the treatment been going for you? And then the second question is, it's not every day that you get such a diagnosis from your doctors. So how do you process or how, or how are you processing mortality? The fact that the days ahead are probably less than the days that have been. Take care. Well, thanks, Aaron. I'm doing well. I am still full of energy and I still got all my brain cells. I'm still undergoing chemo. I think the idea of being sick is something that never occurred to me before. I think most people have to deal with it in their own way. If you're responsible, let's say you're a father or a mother and you have kids. I, I think that's quite a heavy burden if you're sick and you have responsibilities to other people. Right now, I'm, I'm still trying to work out the right ways to think about being sick. And I, I suspect it'll take a while. So I've got a second question, and this is from Jeff. Hi, this is Jeff. I'm from the legal industry as well. When you were still serving your clients in court, what was the severity of your cancer situation? And do you find that it affected your performance? Oh, oh, thanks, Jeff. So I'm lucky in that this cancer is not the sort that really interferes with the way I think or the way I talk. I, I probably won't be able to run and jump and do stuff like that. But fortunately for lawyers, we don't do a lot of running or jumping. The only thing we jump at, jumping at conclusions, I do that a lot. So in, I think in court and 
to my clients, I'm the same person, except, except I have no hair. And I still, I still have issues with that. I, I, doing this Zoom with you, Lingya, I see myself and I think, oh, I look very different. That's the, the one thing that I can't wait to, to, to return. That, that's, that's my hair. The, it's the most immediate reminder of my illness. And it's also the main reason I had to announce that I was ill. So for most people, when they have cancer, it's a private thing. You don't have to talk about it. But for me, there's two reasons I had to do it. Number one, I was, I'm the president of the Law Society. And if, if I'm very ill and I can't attend functions and can't carry out my duties sometimes, I feel that I should tell the members. But the second thing is that if I lose all my hair, uh, my members are going to guess anyway that, that I'm going through chemo. So for those reasons, I had to do it. But once my hair grows back... I honestly expected you to come with your many, many hats that you say you have a surplus of. <laughs> I, have, I, have a, I have a King of Singapore hat that somebody gave me. And I have a Make Lawyering Great Again hat. I get weird hats. These people know you well. <laughs> so second question from Jeff. Here we go. What and when was the tipping point that led you to change your life perspectives to serve others? Oh, that's a great question. I think that I started to understand serving people after I started working. So if you are in this job, if you're in this job, being a lawyer, you get to see sometimes people at their saddest times when they need help, when they're down on their luck, when they've been hurt or injured or betrayed, they've lost money, they've lost relationships. And at that point, you can either deal with it as, oh, it's just a job. I'm going to do this task and do that task and I'll get paid. Or I'm going to, I'm going to try and make this person feel better. And once you start thinking the second way, then you're thinking about serving others. For me, being a lawyer reminds me of the time when my mom, my mom was going through a divorce. That was my first encounter with a, with a lawyer. She, she had a lawyer that was helping her with a divorce. And I was just a, just a child. I was just a teenager. And I, I spoke to the lawyer. I was very upset. I was, I was very rude to the lawyer. I was, I was trying to make the divorce happen quickly and finish and let us move on. Of course, I didn't have the vocabulary or the tools to express myself. And he was, he was listening to me and he was very patient. He was, he was, he was, he understood that I was just some kid that was upset because his parents were getting divorced. And he could have just hung up on me because I'm not his client. He could have just cut me short. But he, he heard me out. And to me, that service, that's when a human being is trying to help another human being. So I think if you're in this line of work, 
you get a lot of reminders that you can either choose to be a person who's paid to do tasks or you can be a person who wants to make other people feel better. So we have our third guest, Chris. Hi, Adrian. My name is Chris. I think it's really amazing that you are still so active, doing so many things to serve the community while undergoing your treatment. I wish you all the best in your recovery. My question to you will be, my teenage son, who is in a debate club in your alumni ACS, thinks that he wants to become a lawyer. What advice can you give him to help him make a decision whether he should be a lawyer or not? Thank you. And she also lives in a HDB flat. Oh, well, I completely support your son to be a lawyer and I think you should allow him to make that decision when the time comes. But the stuff he needs now, stuff he needs now, number one is he needs to read a lot. He needs to read not just textbooks, but he needs to read a lot of other kinds of books, whether novels or nonfiction. And why does he have to read a lot? Because he has to know human nature. He has to understand the different situations that people find themselves in. Number two, number two, he needs to make a lot of friends or have a lot of acquaintances. In other words, he needs to be very sociable. Because the idea of being a lawyer and serving people, it only works if you if you have some basic people skills. And that has to be acquired very early on. So how your son interacts with adults, with his peers, with people younger than him, that's crucial. And he needs to expose himself to all kinds of interactions, either by doing ECAs, extracurricular activities, sports, or debating competitions, or just making lots of friends. Social media is, is one way as well. So the two things he needs to do, he needs to read a lot and he needs to make lots of friends. So we have another guest called Jade. Hi Adrian, this is Jade, a curious ex-business consultant still trying to find her footing in the society. My question is, what keeps you motivated and keeps you wanting to strive for more? In case being diagnosed with cancer is your answer, it is also one that can be a double-edged sword. Some people become stronger, while some just lose their drive to fight entirely. Did you deal with it differently? And how did you do that? That's nice. Thanks, Jake. So I suppose if you think about cancer as any other type of bad news, you can think of it as a thing which defines you. So if you have bad news, let's say the loss of a parent or a partner, or an illness, or some other misfortune, that's, that's actually when you start to realize what matters. For me, when I was diagnosed, then it quickly became clear to me what was important in my life and what's not important in my life. So I needed to do, I needed to be president, I needed to do my work for my clients. I needed to keep in touch with my friends and keep my relationships going. And everything else that I used to think about, money, possessions, some other accomplishments, nah, they, 
they just faded away because who cares? You know, really, if if your life ends and you have millions of dollars, who cares? So I, I think once you get bad news like this, immediately you'll know what matters. Finally, we have Dave. He's a fellow legal lawyer, criminal lawyer, and he's got two hefty legal questions for you. So I'll play the first one. Hi, Adrian. This is Dave Nather from Kuala Lumpur. I've got two questions for you. First, about the death penalty for drug trafficking. A lot of criticism has been leveled against Malaysia and Singapore for the harsh stand that it's taken in imposing the death penalty for those found guilty of drug trafficking. Now, the thing is, these critics come from countries that haven't themselves been able to control the drug problem there. So the issue I have here, however, is the finality of the death penalty. It offers no chance for the guilty, especially their drug meals, to make things right for their families and for society. I think a reformed convict can bring more awareness than just a mere poster pasted on a school wall. But what are your views on this, Adrian? That's the first question. That's the first question. So that's, that's a real tough one, Dave. And I have to say that my views keep changing on the death penalty. I was more in favor of it and then less in favor of it and then more in favor of it and then less in favor of it. And it's for the reasons that you mentioned, which is that it's the finality of the death penalty. If you take away someone's life, then how do you account for any miscarriage of justice, any mistakes? The answer is if your system is rigorous enough that you're fairly confident that every avenue has been exhausted, that the person who is convicted is indeed guilty of the crime, then yes, you, you can have your finality. The, the other aspect of it is the morality of taking someone's life. But against that, I, I have to tell you what people have, other people who are in jail have told me, which is they don't want to spend the rest of their lives in jail. They, if they get a life imprisonment, they feel that that is in a way more torturous more cruel if they live for another 50 years in prison. I think it would drive them nuts. And there are also people who feel that they'd rather, they much rather just have their lives ended. I know it's quite a harsh thing to say, but so we talk about the death penalty, we have to talk about the alternative, which is life imprisonment. Because it's hard. I would say probably it's very rare that the alternative to a death penalty is a fixed sentence and then the person gets to, gets to go and be released back into society. We, have a, we, we are usually offered only these two alternatives. So I, I think it's not easy at all to decide whether the death penalty is worse or life imprisonment. This is the second question. The second question I have is about the divide or disparity between Malaysia and Singapore. Now, do you feel that there's a cultural divide between our two countries? And if so, what do you think is the cause? I mean, at the end of the day, we are neighbors. Can't be an argument about food because, you know, that's a battle we won years ago. Sometimes, though, I think that there are uneasy things that are said or done in the media by politicians. But do you think that those things are actually truly reflective of how the people on both sides feel? Thanks for answering questions, Adrian. And lastly, just want to tell you that we are rooting for your health and recovery. We wish you the best, mate. 
We love reading your posts on LinkedIn. Take care. Thanks, Dave. Well, I'm very happy to tell you that Singaporeans and Malaysians, they are probably as close as any two nationalities can be to being friends. Let's put aside what the politicians say because, I mean, they're politicians, right? They'll have to say stuff for local consumption when the need arises. But the truth is that if you put a Singaporean into Malaysia or a Malaysian into Singapore, most of the time, they'll fit right in. And that's because we kind of have the same heritage, the same background. There are minor differences. I'm not even sure that, that they're very real differences or just cliches. I think Malaysians can think of Singaporeans as being a little too rude and a little too money-minded. And maybe we speak yep. very fast and we tend, to, we tend to make unflattering comparisons. But trust me, Dave, we do this to Malaysians. We also do this to ourselves. So it's not, it's not anything. As far as Singaporeans' impressions of Malaysians, it's very favorable. I think there is no real negative stereotype of Malaysians here in Singapore. In fact, as I mentioned to Lingya earlier in this talk, many, many people are looking to Malaysia as a source of migration, as a source of future Singaporeans. So I think as, as Singapore ages and if our population declines, we, we are probably going to start harvesting Malaysians as, as soon as possible. So we are probably looking at Malaysia as poor version two. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. Do you feel like you have found your why? I, I do feel that I found my why. And I also want to say that a person can have one why or many whys. And if I was to encapsulate the whys that I have, it's probably to, to reach out and communicate with people to, to help them make this life a little bit better to provide some understanding. That's, that's my why. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Oh, you know, I feel that that's a question. I, I, I don't like the question, not because of, not because of, but it's because I don't believe that there is, there's any point in thinking about what happens after we're gone. Uh, who, who cares is my constant, my constant test to any situation is two things. So what and who cares? And whether I have a legacy or not, who cares? If I'm gone, the world will carry on and there'll be a lot more stuff to do. We will still occupy ourselves. And I think that's fine. It's not as if I have any power over my legacies. It's not as if I'm Bill Gates and have billions of dollars that I can build a foundation. I'm just a guy. And for most of us, here and now is more important than the future. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Oh, I think if if people around him feel better because he's there, 
that's all that matters. And where can people go to contact you, follow you, support, buy your third book when it's out? <laughs> I'm still writing my third book. But in the meantime, I'm on LinkedIn. Do follow me there. I do comment on the stuff I write. And if you disagree, all the better. Actually, is there anything that listeners can help you with? At the, not, not at the moment. I, I'm quite sure that I'm quite sure that when this airs, more thoughts will occur to me. But <laughs> my, usual, my usual mind is always a blank. And is there anything else you'd like to share with that we haven't covered so far? No, not at all. I, I, I'm very happy that I have a chance to talk about Singapore and Malaysia. It's the one relationship that, that Singapore has because we don't have any neighbors except Malaysia. So I'm very happy that we're talking about it. And I'm very happy that it's a feature of today's discussion. And that was the end of this special tribute episode to Adrian Sun, the King of Singapore. If you'd like a copy of the transcript, head over to sothismyway.com forward slash 101. I hope you enjoyed this episode and felt that it did Adrian justice, showcasing the kind of person he was, the circumstances that molded him, and the legacy that he has and will continue to leave behind. Simi will be back on its normal schedule next Sunday. So until then, have a great Sunday, everyone.